It's good to be with you guys and see you guys. Um, if this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to Redemption. Uh, just a little bit about Redemption. We're one church, and we meet at multiple congregations, one in Arcadia, one in Gateway, um, which is the Queen Creek area, one in Gilbert, and then here in Tempe. Our, our mission is to make disciples who see that all of life is all for Jesus. Uh, primary means we do that is through planning churches. And so in the next year, you will hear, particularly from this particular congregation, of us planning two churches. If you were here last week, you saw Pastor Justin come and preach, and Justin and Ryan and their families will be leaving to go plant a church in San Francisco. And then you guys all know Vince, who did our call to worship uh, this evening. He will be leaving with his family and a team to Flagstaff. And so we will be sending them off because that's something that we want to do. Uh, we probably won't be sending any more churches anywhere uh, within the next year. Um, I want to promise you that, but if you've been around Redemption long enough, we just can't say anything. We just say everything is for now. So today, I'm your pastor, and we'll see what happens next Sunday, all right? <laughs> no, just joking, just joking. Hey, um, if you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? One of the guys will be able to get you a Bible. Um, we're going to be in Galatians. Um, a few announcements that I have for you guys before we get there. Baby dedications. Um, we will be having baby dedications on April 1st. That's a Sunday before Easter. And so if you're here and you have a newborn or you have a baby that you haven't dedicated. Now, um, we want to say that we're going to ba- baby, baby dedicate any of your kids, but, you know, there's, there's got to be a limit. If you've got a 35-year-old son that you haven't dedicated... It's okay. Um, just we'll pray for him like after the service. So if you, if you have children that you want to be dedicated before the church and before the Lord, April 1st is the date for you. Um, just fill out your information, your email address, and the information card, and just write baby dedication. Later during our time of response, you can drop that off in the offering boxes, and we'll be able to get that to you. Um, also, we have redemption classes. On the seat around you, there should be these uh, flyers here that, that shows what classes we're teaching for March, April, and May. And so in March... Next Wednesday, we'll begin a one-week class on the attributes of God, Um, and so I highly recommend that you attend that. It's a means for you to understand more about the character and the nature of God. Um, Every week, um, all the way until the end of March on Wednesday, from 6.30 to 8, we'll have corporate prayer. Um, And I don't want this just to be a side note. If you're not doing anything on a Wednesday night and you would love to come and pray, all it is is you come come and guys that lead that time, some guys and gals lead that time, just an opportunity to pray for our church, pray for the needs in our church, pray for our city, um, and pray for the lost to come to know Jesus. And so again, that's 6.30 to 8 every Wednesday. And then Ruth's class. If you've been at Redemption for less than a year, I highly recommend you take the Roots class. And here's why. Roots is our way to introduce you to the story of the gospel, and not only the story of the gospel, but how we in Redemption Tempe particularly live out that gospel. So Pastor Ryan Elam will be teaching that class. That's a three-week class. Again, you can sign up for all these classes, Active Connect This, or you can go by the city. If you're not familiar with the city is, the city is our online um, internet form of communication. It's our internal communication. Um, if you're not on the city, you can get an invite to the city and develop an account by stopping at the Connect Desk on your way out. Um, that's all I have for announcements. I'm going to do something real quick. I'm going to invite the Fiji team to come up. Um, if you guys would come forward, please. Would you guys join me in welcoming them?
And so this is the team that will be leaving um, on Thursday. Uh, actually, no, I want you guys come up here. I don't want to get a lot of people close to me. Um, if you guys can uh, come up here, the team that's going to be leaving on Thursday to Fiji, and uh, we want to just bring them up here and be able to have you guys see the team that's going. Uh, this is Rick Priggy right here. Rick Priggy will be leading these guys. You guys have um, eaten all their baked goods and bought things from them and be able to send them as a church. And so we think the best way to be able to send them off is if we would all join and uh, praying for them. Would you guys please stand? Stand with me um, as, we, as we pray for this team and send them. Uh, would you guys join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Rick and this team. God, we thank you for the word that will go forth through them, the effort and the work that will go forth through them. God, we pray for your favor upon them, Lord, that you'd bless them in their travel, that you bless them in their stay and their return. God, I pray that you would open up doors, Lord, that they are not expecting, Lord, that their gospel may go forth. Lord, I ask that you'd give them endurance, Lord, as they, as they work. Um, God, have their eyes open to see what you would have for them to see, that apart from you they could not see, and to, to hear, Lord, what they would not hear. God, I pray that you would, um, just by your spirit, Lord, just anoint them, Father, in, the, in this trip, and that we would be thanking of them as they leave, be thanking them as they're gone, Lord, that they would not be out of our hearts in prayer. God, we thank you for the great opportunity to be able to send people to do your work in places that we ourselves may never be. Um, God, we thank you for that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Enjoy, eat good food. All right, if you guys have your Bible, won't you meet me in Galatians chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 1. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Um, as you turn there, um, if you have been following us in this series of the book of Galatians, what you see is Galatians 1 and 2 have been personal. It's been Paul's defense of the gospel and his defense of his leadership as a leader of the gospel. Um, Chapters 3 and chapter 4 have been highly theological. And mainly looking at the building blocks or the teaching of the doctrine of justification, that teaching that says that man cannot come to God apart from God coming to man. That, That the way that a person is made right or justified or made righteous before God is not by his or her works, Um, not by his or her background, not by anything that they can do, but apart from their works, but completely in the grace, which is God's unmerited favor. And Paul took two weeks, ultimately two chapters, three and four, to unpack that truth. Now, the last two chapters of Galatians, chapter five and chapter six, are Christian ethics. So in essence, how we are, those of us who would in this room who would say they're Christians, how we are to live in response of the gospel. I'm looking to the life of Christ and what he's done for us, how he's poured out his life for us. How do we live? And so Paul begins that um, by using some metaphors of freedom um, and slavery. And so last week, um, if you were here, Justin talked about freedom and slavery, and Paul takes that same theme into chapter 5 to talking about how we are to use our freedom. Um, But what's interesting here, if you have your Bibles, in verse 1, Paul begins by talking about freedom. However, verses 2 through 12, he talks about false teaching. And the reason why he talks about false teaching is because he's talking about um, another form of slavery, He's talking about another form of slavery that would get in the way of freedom. And so what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to teach verses 1 through 12 and just walk through the false teaching, point out the implications of what Paul is talking about. And then he gives us two imperatives at the end in verses 13 through 15, two imperatives. One is a negative imperative with the negative incentive, and the other one is a positive imperative um, with a positive incentive. And so that's what we'll do in our time. So Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So so Paul starts with saying, for freedom. 
Um, and people would ask, well, I don't get this freedom. What is Paul communicating with freedom? The best way I can describe this is this. What Paul is saying now is apart from God, you are able to do whatever you want to do except for the very thing that you were created to do. Meaning, apart, apart from the gospel, can you be good dads? Absolutely. Apart from Jesus, can you be a good mom? Can you be good people? Absolutely. But you cannot do what you were created to do. You and I, uh, as human beings, were created in God's image to bring glory to him and to enjoy him. Meaning everything that God made in creation, whether it be business, art, work, um, family, relationships, we're supposed to use those things in a way to bring glory to God, to enjoy him. Um, We're supposed to work in such a way that shows forth the glory of God. And yet, as we've been unpacking these last eight weeks, is that there's a problem with man. That in the original story, we see that we sinned against God, Adam did, and Eve did. Therefore, we are in a position that by nature and by choice, we are sinners. Sinners does not mean that we can't do good. Paul says only and through the work of Jesus Christ now are we free again by faith to be able to do what we are created to do, and that is bring glory to God. And so Paul says that's what freedom is, and you've been free. He continues in verse 1 to say, so stand firm, which is a military term that means be strong. Whatever you do, don't lose ground. Therefore, and we say this all the time, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask what is a therefore, therefore. Um, That's just good Bible training. Usually the author is connecting something that he has already said to what he's about to say. And so Paul, in verse 1 of chapter 5, makes a transition from the first four chapters. The first four chapters have been the gospel story, that God has created perfectly to be with us, to walk with us, to care for us, to provide for us. And yet in Adam, we all sin. And we will try through religion, we will try through our own efforts, we will try through our own works to to reach back to God, and yet it's impossible. But God in his goodness and his love, he sends his son Jesus that in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ, that he will fully rescue and renew all of creation, and that we enter into that story only by faith and not by works. Paul says, because of that, therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And when Paul talks about slavery here, he's not talking about slavery to sin, He's not talking about slavery as we naturally think of slavery in our American history here. He's talking about slavery to false teaching. In fact, when he uses the word yoke there, yoke was, was used as a metaphor. Because what the yoke was was a wooden piece that would, would, would tie two oxen together as they would, as they would um, carry the burden or the loads of heavy equipment. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 uses this term of yoke because yoke was a metaphor also used for the teaching of the Sadducees, the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus looks at his people and say, listen, come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light because the yoke of the law with its 611 rules was something that was impossible and it was heavy and it weighed people down. And Jesus called the discipleship and said it was easy because all it was was a commitment to believe in him by faith. And so Paul is saying, don't submit. You're free, but don't submit again to false teaching. Don't submit again to something that is not the gospel. And then he takes the next few verses, the next several verses to unpack that false teaching. Verse 2, an imperative. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ would be of no advantage to you. I want to pause there because this word circumcision keeps coming up over and over again. And when Paul says, if, if you accept circumcision, he's saying, if you accept the act of circumcision as a way to make yourself right before God, if you, if you accept any act that you can do, if you, if you find anything, whether it's your family, whether it's your work, whether it's your moral attainment, to, to, to have standing before God, Paul says, 
If you find your value, your worth, your identity in anything else other than Jesus, anything, it could be a good thing, it could be a dream, it could be something that is God-given. If you look to that as a means for salvation, Paul says three things. One, Christ would be of no advantage to you. He's saying you're, you're, you're separating yourself from Christ. And the reason why Christ would be of no advantage is, is because you don't need Jesus to be a good person. I, I want to be clear. Christianity, God's call for us, is not just to be good moral beings. Christianity is not a set of rules in which we, by our own efforts, now have to obey and do so that God would look down upon us and say, good job, my good and faithful servant. That is not the teaching of the gospel. And yet, in so many churches, and even our own hearts, our natural inclination is to think that Christianity is work-based. We may not say that with our mouth, but we, we live that way. For me, I think I've shared this story. When I first became a Christian, there was a girl that I knew. Her name was Katie. She was, in my opinion, the godliest person ever. And here's why. She, she never got drunk. She never swore. She, she was really, really nice. She drove a really nice car. I figured good Christians should drive a nice car, I guess. I don't know why. And, and, and I invited her, once I became a Christian, I invited her uh, to this, this, this um, parachurch ministry that I was a part of, and she would come, and like week after week, and afterwards, she goes, hey, why do you keep inviting me to this? I'm like, because you're a Christian. She goes, I'm not a Christian, are you kidding me? It was like an offense to her, and I was like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to offend you, right? And I, I said, I thought, you were, I thought you were a Christian, you do all these good things, and she goes, yeah, I do all those good things, and she goes, in fact, I'm better than most of my Christian friends. I do everything that their Bible tells them they're supposed to do, and she goes, so why would I need Jesus? And she was right. Now hear me, I'm not saying that she doesn't need Jesus for salvation. I'm just saying if all we're after is morality, if, if all we're after is to just be good people, then she's God. If all we're after is behavior modification, then, she, then she's right. You don't need Jesus for that. You, you, don't, you don't need Jesus just to be a good person. And Paul says, if you want to obey a set of rules for the sole being of making yourself righteous before God, he says, one, Christ would be of no advantage for you. The second part in verse 3, he says, is, I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law, which we've been saying no one can keep the whole law. It's impossible. And the third thing, it's probably the scariest here, it says, you are severed from Christ, you who will be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And, and you hear that, and the first thing you think about is, oh, so someone was a Christian, and now they're not a Christian? That's not what Paul's saying. Paul, and nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that someone who is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ can somehow, uh, because of their sin or because of something they've done, lose that. We, we said that two weeks ago. A good father does not look at his kid and say, I love you, and then all of a sudden go, never mind, I don't anymore. That, that's not what the Bible teaches. What Paul is saying here is in communicating is if you accept the law, if you accept any form of, of religion, any form of um, list or rules that we have to find your identity and your value, he says, you have fallen away from grace because law and grace are two different things. They're diametrically opposed. They don't go together like oil and water. One is significant, significantly greater than the other. Um, like U of A and ASU, one is significantly greater than the other, right? That's what Paul's saying. One brings condemnation and the other one brings life. That illustration was perfect. It's been three weeks since I made a Tucson joke, and so I'm allowed now. <laughs> Paul, Paul, Paul is trying to say, falling away from grace, meaning that you never look to Jesus to be your Savior. You might have committed, you might have said his word, his name, you might have mentioned the name of Christ, you might have done some religious things, but if, if you ultimately are trusting in your works, then you never saw, you've never seen the gospel. That's what Paul's communicating. It, it, ultimately, what this is called is legalism. L legalism 
at its very definition is any time we rely on self-effort to either attain or maintain a just standing before God and before others. Uh, sometimes we do that culturally. Sometimes we use biblical things. We'll take the imperatives of the Bible, meaning that the things that God does say do, love your husband, love your wives, love your kids, and you do those things and go, because I'm doing those things, I feel good. Or when I'm not doing those things, now I don't feel like I have a standing before God. And Paul says, if you ever lead with the imperatives before the gospel, it's a form of legalism. And we would all go, oh, oh, no one wants to be a legalist, and yet everyone is a functional legalist. We just do it in different ways. When, when I became a Christian, there were certain things that you weren't supposed to do as a Christian. One of those things, at least communicated to me, one of those things was, was drink beer, alcohol, Pepsi, whatever it was, right? And I remember that early on, um, I went to this thing called happy hour, and after that, um, I went to a church service, some, another church in the valley, which remains nameless, and this guy next to me, I had one drink, one beer. And I know that's, the, always the, that's always what you tell the cops. Oh, I've only had like one beer. No, this was the truth before him. All right. And this guy next to me goes, have you been drinking? Are you serious? And we're singing. And I'm like, and I just, I'm, honestly, I felt, oh, stopped. Did, did, would, didn't want to touch a drink again. Because what was communicated to me was good Christians don't do that. Another thing that we do is, is either smoking cigars or tattoos, and I wasn't using illustration about that, but I'm like, this is Tempe, everyone has a tattoo, so we'll get to the next illustration, right? Um, we, 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 we do it in the way that we teach even our kids or our children or our teenagers. What teenagers hear naturally in Christian circles is just be good. If you could just be good. If you, any of you guys have ever grown up in a student ministries, that what you heard at some level, and I'm, I'm indicting myself, I've been a student pastor, is if we're not careful, what we hear is, do good. And the kids who do good, those are the kids that we like because they do good. And that's, that's, that's not the gospel. Anything that we elevate as a form to say, quote unquote, that's what a good Christian does. Last week when Justin was teaching, I got the opportunity to visit about five or six churches in the valley, which by the way, for those of you who church hop, that's an exhausting experience. Uh, just find a church and stay there, goodness. Not because they were all bad churches, just this one was better. And, and, and at the, it's a joke, guys. It's a joke. The point I'm trying to communicate here is I begin to hear what people thought about Redemption Tempe. And one of the pastors I was meeting with goes, oh yeah, aren't you guys the cloth diaper church? And I'm thinking, I spend hours a week trying to study the text, and that's what we're known for? We're known for cloth diapers? Here, here's, what I, here's what I would say. If you use cloth diapers, continue to use cloth diapers. If you use disposable diapers, continue to use dis disposable diapers. Whatever your conscience has, use it. But don't make that a gospel issue. The last thing we need to know is, hey, you know what Redemption Tempe? Hey, you know what they're about? They're gospel-centered and cloth-focused, right? We can't, we, we can't have that. We, we, we have... Whatever it is, whenever we elevate something culturally, biblically, above the gospel, it becomes legalism. I had two girls come into my office this, this past week and both had similarly the same story. It was, I grew up in a church and now I'm in college and I'm hearing my teacher talk and it's a, it's, she's, a she's a feminist. And she's saying how traditional values have oppressed women. And long story short, what the girls were communicating was all I've ever thought and have been taught was a good Christian girl goes to college and from going to college, marries a godly man, has kids, and stays at home. She goes, is that true? And I'm like, no. It, I'm not saying that a good Christian girl can't go to college, especially if it's an awesome university like the one here, and, and, and then marry a godly guy and have kids and stay at home. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying, guys, that's not the gospel. And we have to be careful what we're teaching when we elevate these things the same. Culture and preference and gospel, they've got to be separated. The gospel ultimately is not anything that we can do to make ourselves, quote-unquote, good Christians. 
You see, what makes us godly is not anything that we do. What makes us godly is Jesus. Paul is clear here. There is no righteousness in ourselves. We can't look deeper and find anything in ourselves. There's not enough scripture that we can read. There's not enough redemption communities that we can join. The only way that we will have a standing before God that we can trust and stand firm is, is if God himself did something. And that's exactly what he does. In verse 5, Paul says this, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Meaning, it's by faith through God's Spirit. God's Spirit, it's not a working of ourselves. We can't conjure this up. God gives this to us freely in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ. And then Paul wraps up this first section and says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. You see, Paul was saying circumcision wasn't the issue. Paul wasn't anti-circumcision. He was a Jewish person. Um, in Philippians 3, we see that he was circumcised in the eighth day. That was a cultural thing. Whatever your cultural things are, let them be cultural. Whatever, we, we say this all the time. If you are a person who loves wearing Tom's shoes, you wear Tom's shoes. If you're a person who loves wearing Chuck's tailors, you wear Chuck Taylors. If you don't wear shoes, don't wear shoes. I mean, just, just never make it a gospel issue. Paul says, it doesn't matter. What matters most is the life of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, now, Paul does in these next few verses is, is now attack, um, I think, biblically, the false teaching. Verse 7, he says, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The, the picture that he gives here is that of a runner. And since I'm not a runner, I'm going to use another metaphor of driving. You guys know what it's like when you're driving and someone cuts you off? And I know you guys because you're such godly people. When that happens, you pray for them, you bless them, you say, Lord, be with them. May your spirit bless them. That, that, that's what you say. No, you're upset. Paul, Paul, Paul gets upset for them. And he says, who is it that's hindering you? Who are these people? Who are these men? Who is it that's teaching you a false truth and they're getting in the way I'm hindering, meaning they're cutting you off? And I think Paul is using word language here on a purpose because he's talking about circumcision, which was the big issue that the Judaizers were teaching. He's saying, who hindered you? Who cut in on you from obeying the truth? As he, as he goes on, he says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you, meaning it's not from God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And, and, and Paul, Paul is just saying, all it takes is a little bit of bad teaching. All it takes is a little bit of bad doctrine. Um, this is why every single person that we put in front of you, whether it's someone who's going to lead music, whether it's someone who's going to teach the Bible, someone in your community, they have to understand the gospel. When, when we say that we're a gospel-centered church, that is not a, hey, we're gospel-centered, we're better. We're just saying we don't want to get this wrong. Because it's so tricky, all you have to do is get it twisted, or as Paul said in verse chapter 1, get it perverted. To vert it means twist it. Because at the end of the day, is it good to read your Bible? Absolutely. Is it good to pray? Absolutely. But if somehow we said you need to pray in order to be a Christian, you need to walk down an aisle in order to be a Christian, you need to read your Bible in order to be a Christian, we've just distorted the gospel. And it was just, it was something that small. And Paul says all it takes is a little bit just to get the gospel wrong at one level and it could mess this whole thing up. And, and I love Paul's pastoral heart in verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. The, the confidence here is, is in relation to verse five when he said, or verse four when he said you can fall away from grace. Paul is saying, no, no, no. I have confidence that he who began a good work in you will finish it. This should be comforting to us and for those of us who disciple um, and those who are being discipled. We always have people, we have people in our life, or this has happened to ourselves, that have walked with the Lord and have walked strong in the Lord and have believed upon the gospel and faith. And for whatever reason, circumstances, sin, they, they've walked away. And not just walked away from church, but walked away from godly Christian relationships, walked away from accountability. Um, and, and 
the hope is because God doesn't lose his, that we pray that he would draw them back. And the encouraging part of that is probably every two to three weeks, I will get somebody who will come in here and I'll say, hey, how you doing? My name's Ricardo. And they'll say something like, man, I've been away from church for years. I've been away from church for months. And you know what? I think God's calling me back. And that, 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 that's Paul's heart in this. He goes, I have, no, I have no confidence in my preaching. I have no confidence in my teaching. And, but what he's saying is I have confidence in the Lord because the sovereignty of God will trump bad teaching. The sovereign mercy and love of God and grace of God will trump bad theology because God cares more about you than anyone else. He cares more about you than you can care about yourself. And Paul says, I have a confidence in that. And then he turns on the, the, the false teachers. He says, verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He said, if, if I was preaching that there was any way that, that man um, or woman can do something to earn favor with God, then why am I being persecuted? Paul's saying, I'm not just being persecuted because I'm a Christian. I'm being persecuted because I'm challenging every single thought, ideology, philosophy, and religion that's out there. Because every other religion says, I obey, therefore God will accept me. And then religion, excuse me, gospel, biblical Christianity says, no, you're already accepted in Christ, therefore you obey. That's an offense to people. To boil it down, the offense of the cross is it crushes human pride. Because on the cross, what we see is that you were so bad that the God of this universe had to die for you. And for those who believe, you see at the same time that you were so loved that he was pleased to do it because he loves you. The the cross says you can't. The cross is not, hey, you could do 60% and I'll do 40%. The cross says you couldn't. You did not have the ability to do ultimately what you were created to do and be who you were created to be. But God himself in his mercy and his love, he sends his son Jesus. This is an offense because most of us, we would love lists. If someone gave us a list and said, hey, this is the four things that you need to do to be a Christian and to maintain your Christian relationship, some of us would like that because we, we want control. Grace makes you lose all control. Grace says that you trust your entire life in the hands of a sovereign God. Grace says you have no control. And just to be honest with you, whether you believe in grace or not, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you're still not in control in your life. We all want lists because we want to measure up. Um, one of the examples is in the office right now, in our office here, we have a little uh, game going on. It's kind of silly, but it's a biggest gainer, biggest loser competition. And so we put teams together. The one person has to gain as much weight as he can. The other person has to lose as much weight as he can. Me and Pastor Jason, the same team together, we're going to win. Um, and so he's got to gain a bunch of weight, and I've got I to lose a bunch of weight. And so, gosh, I haven't eaten in three days, and so you guys can pray for me. So, no, there's, <laughs> But the, the, the sense is when you get on the scale, you know I've done good. Or you get on the scale and go, <laughs> I haven't done good, right? And so, so but there's, there's things that you can do. I can tell Jason, keep eating. Jason can tell me, stop eating, right? There's a, there's a way that you can do it. And what, not only can you measure yourself, what, what Christians love to do too, we begin to measure others. Oh, there's no way they're a Christian. There's no way a Christian would do fill in the blank. And Grace says, uh-uh. Because Grace looks at the most moral person and says, yeah, you get in, but ultimately not because of your morality, but because of Jesus. And then grace also looks at those who we would say are completely far out or completely lost and says, no, you get in too, not because of what you've done, ultimately because of what Jesus has done. Grace, grace that there's no particular type of person that grace is, um, is looking for. There's, there's no particular lifestyle, ultimately, prerequisite that you have to have in order to, to, um, to get grace. In fact, the only thing that you need to have to understand grace and to get grace is sin. 
Grace necessitates sin. Grace says, you have to admit that I can't. And that's an offense to people. It's offense to our culture. Another reason why the cross was offense is because Christianity, ultimately Jesus, makes an exclusive claim. And that is he is the only one to salvation. That Jesus says he's the only one to ultimate reality. Meaning the way that your life, the way that your story will make sense is only by faith in connecting to him. And Paul says, that's an offense. If it were something that you can do, then it would no longer be gospel it would no longer be good news. At best, it would be good advice. But we don't need good advice for things for us to do. We need good news to see what Christ has done for us. Amen? Paul, Paul, Paul closes this section with a, whew, a sharp language. He says, I wish, speaking of those who are, who are preaching false gospel, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would go the whole way and would emasculate themselves. I was trying to figure out, how am I going to illustrate this, right? Um, picture, flannel graph, not really sure. Come on. It's in the Bible. Um, Some people look at this and go, why would he say that? Here's what I believe Paul is doing. Paul is saying, because they're hammering so hard on circumcision, and that as a means of of entrance, um, of being sustained and maintained their relationship with God, he goes, that, that ultimately, bad teaching, false doctrine, does not lead people in the presence of God. It leads people away from the presence of God. And so when Paul says, I wish they go all the way and emasculate themselves, what he's talking to is the Jewish people in Jewish culture. In the Bible, it says that if a man was a eunuch, meaning if a man did not have his male organ, um, that he would not be allowed to enter into the presence of worship. And so what Paul is saying is to them, just like he said in chapter 1, he says, I wish they were accursed, which literally means I wish they were, were damned. He's saying, not only do I wish they were damned, because they are teaching a false gospel, I pray that they themselves will be removed from the presence of God. And so he's being serious. Listen, Paul, like like our Lord Jesus, and like we all should be, are sensitive and he's patient to, to, to repentant sinners and to people who struggle. But to people who take the name of Jesus and begin to twist it, he's serious about it. Now, let me tell you, we need to be serious about that. There are plenty of people who take the name of Jesus and twist it, take the gospel and twist it. And, and Paul's not talking about religions that don't name Jesus. He goes, oh, they, they, they have their own issues. He goes, I'm talking about people who name Jesus and say, you need to believe in Jesus and also fill in the blank. He says, that's not healthy. The, the best way to think of it is if you love Jesus, if you're here, hear me, I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to be honest. If you love Jesus, think of it as the person in your life that you love the most and someone defaming that person. So if I think about my wife, who I love, I love if I found out that anybody else that I knew was going around and talking about her in ways that were not true, that were going around and saying this is who she is and this is what she's like and it wasn't true, I would be highly offended and upset. And, and that's, that's where Paul is. Paul's not defending Jesus. He's defending the only truth that we have to come to know Jesus. And so that's why he says those things. Because the gospel is free of charge. There's nothing that you do. You're free. Um, you've been freed from the penalty of sin. You are being freed right now through the gospel from its power. And one day you will be free from the very presence of sin. That is absolutely good news. This is apart from you, in spite of you, because of God's love. He says you're free now. You're, you're, you're free. You don't have to wake up in the morning and, and, and somehow feel as if you can't come to God because the, the days before you didn't read your Bible or the days before because you sinned in a way that seemed very ungodly. It probably was ungodly. But the gospel lets you know through grace you can repent and already been forgiven in Christ Jesus. This is a scandal teaching. That's why it's offense. And whenever we get it wrong, we get everything wrong. It's pointless. If there's no gospel, there's no church. And if there's no church, we shouldn't be here right now. We could be putting together our NCAA brackets right now, right? Right now. 
But there is a gospel, and there is good news. And Paul says it does something. When you submit to Jesus' life, you submit your life to Jesus' life, teaching, record, work on your behalf, it does something. And Paul begins to give us our two so what's. The two things. One is a negative imperative with a negative incentive, and the other one's a positive one with a positive incentive. Verse 13, he says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Um, that word called there, that's it, meaning God did something. You were not qualified because you were called. You're, 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 excuse me, you're not called because you were qualified. God didn't go, you know what, you'd be a good person for me. You no. Know, he, he says, it's through his call that you're now qualified. Now, he says, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. There are people who will hear the teaching of grace, that God forgives you past, present, and future. And they would say, oh, if God forgives me past, present, and future, you mean there's nothing I can do and he's not going to kick me out? That means I'm good, I'm going to go to heaven? All right, then I'm going to do what I want to do. And, and Paul answers that question actually in Romans 6. He, he, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, um, so should I keep on sinning so that grace may abound? And he goes, no way. Meaning, meaning rhetorical, rhetorical questions are not looking for answers. There's already answers there. It's a spiritual impossibility. There is no way that someone could look at Jesus and look at Jesus' life and, and, and say that now because of what he's done, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I want to keep on sinning because it doesn't matter because God's going to forgive me. Now, people can do that. Um, they could probably do it for months. They could probably, I don't know how long they can do it, but if they are true children of God, God will discipline them as a father and he would bring them back. And people will say, well, are you saying that people who do that, are they not Christian? I'm not saying that. I'm not God. I can't say you're not a Christian. However, Jesus, he's pretty important in this equation. Jesus said that if, if you love him, you will obey his commandments. If you love him, you will obey. Paul is saying, if you try to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, or, or as, a, as a means to just do whatever you wanted to do. Verse 15 gives the negative incentives. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That sounds very familiar, familiar because what he's saying is, if you use your freedom for yourself, you're being a taker and not a giver. You're looking out for number one. It's all about you. You do whatever you want to do, and you don't care about your neighbor. You don't care about the people across the street from you. You don't care about the people around you. You don't care about your church. Whatever is best for you, it's always about me. And he says, there's a, there's a way that that happens. There's a, there's, a, there's a culture that produces. It doesn't help advance or flourish society, but it's people who bite one another. This is survival of the fittest. Listen, you don't need Jesus to do this. You don't, you don't need Jesus to look after number one. You, you just need to be an American, Right? You don't need Jesus to look after number one. And Paul says, if that's what you want to do, that's, that's not living in response to the gospel. However, he says, this is, do not use your, your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So if you walk away from here today and say, okay, what did Ricardo teach on besides the U of A ASU jokes and circumcision and all that stuff? Just say that in a response to the gospel, it's easy. Christianity is easy. All he's saying is love one another. And here's the positive incentive. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, meaning all the 611 laws. He goes, it's fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's it. We make Christianity so hard. It's look to Jesus, love Jesus, believe in Jesus, follow Jesus. And the way that you will serve Jesus tangibly is by serving the people to the right and to the left of you. It's by serving people across the street from me. It's by looking around and saying, where can I serve? Where can I lay my life down? In response to Jesus laying down his life for me. 
in response to what we read about in Philippians 2, of how he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. That's it. The so what to freedom. Freedom is not an opportunity for you to say, yeah, I can do whatever I want. Freedom is saying, now I've been free to do what God created me to, to be and do what he's created me to do. That is serve one another. That is look to the other person's need. In the same way that I love myself, so love, love people. And some people go, well, I don't know how to love myself. Start somewhere small, right? I'm thankful, but every single one of you guys have clothes on. That's good. If you know how to clothe yourself, clothe somebody else. It's simple. How do I love myself? And then that's how I love others. In fact, this is a long quote, but this is worth it. John Piper writes this, and it's in the study guide. He says this, Love your neighbor as yourself is not a command to love yourself. It is a command to take your natural, already existing love of self and make it a measuring rod for your love for others. There is not a harder command in the Bible than this one. It means want to feed the hungry as much as you want to feed yourself when you get hungry. It means want to find your neighbor a job as much as you are glad that you have a job. Want to help your your fellow student get A's as much as you want to get A's, assuming you want to get A's, right? (laughs) Want to help a person stall on the freeway as much as you are glad you are not stalled on the freeway. Want to give the poor softball player a chance to play as much as you'd want to play the whole game. I disagree with that one. Um... Want, want to share Christ with your neighbor as much as you are glad that you know Christ yourself. Use all the creativity and energy and perseverance uh, to do good things for others as you use them in doing good things for yourself. Care about what happens to others as much as you care about what happens to yourself. Paul is saying we naturally care and love for ourselves. That, that, that what Christ is calling us to do, not to earn his love, uh, not to work for his love, but work from his love, to work out of the approval that we already have in Christ Jesus is to love people. Just imagine what your, one, start at home. Imagine what your household would look like. For those of you who are married, husbands, serve and love your wives. Uh, wife. Um, let's get that one first. <laughs> and then wives, serve and love your husband. Um, brothers and sisters, roommates, love one another. It is not our natural tendency to go home. When I go home from work, my natural tendency is not to come home, wash dishes, hang out with the boys, get on the floor and play train, trains with Noah. One, because he's always trying to tell me what to do and tries to punk me. And the other, the, the, the other reason is my knees don't bend. Though. I want to come home, I want to sit on the right side of the couch and I want to watch TV. I want to watch Sports Center. I want to see what's going on. I might have missed something in the past six hours, right? Nine hours. I work all day. And, and, and that's not, but it's, it's go home and be a servant. Roommates, be a servant. It, it's, it's imagine what your house would look like. Imagine what our church would look like. I mean, imagine what our city would look like if Christians, if Christians would just do the simple thing that God calls us to do. In loving him, in response to loving him, go serve somebody. Um, I, I pray by God's grace that um, I joked about the cotton diaper thing, that we're not known for anything other than the fact that we love Jesus and we serve people. I don't, I mean, at Redemption Tempe, I can't speak for Arcadia and Gateway and, and Gilbert, they're on their own, right? But for us, is that we love Jesus, and in loving Jesus, that we serve people. That people don't, oh yeah, that's the, that's the cool church, that's the young church, that's the church with good music, that's the church with the new handsome pastor. None of that, right? <laughs> I'm sick of hearing that, all right? <laughs> but, but, I, and I'll... And I'll <laughs> So in all, in, all, in, all, in all honesty, that, that in love for Jesus, that we take, we, take, we take ourselves not seriously, but we take him seriously, we take the one thing that he says. He says, we're not going to submit to slavery. We are free in Christ Jesus, and we will use the freedom that we have to serve others. Amen? All right.
Let's pray. Father, even in the second time teaching this, Father, and just reading through this, Lord, it is so hard for us to get um, the gospel right, Lord, because all the things that you tell us to do are good things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do them in response to Jesus. And Father, I pray, Lord, that a message of grace, Lord, would never just wash over us, Lord. I pray that a message, Father, of, of um, the awareness of false teaching, we would not take light. We would never assume, Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would never get old of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that is, it's the very power of God for those who would believe. So, Lord, I thank you for those who do and for your work of grace in their lives. And I pray for those who are here tonight that do not yet know you, Lord. And I thank you that they're with us and they're in our presence, Lord. And I pray that your spirit would move. And, Lord, as we said and our, our, our prayer is continuing, Lord, that you would take the message of the gospel, you would apply it to our families, you'd apply it to our marriages, to our singleness, to our brokenness, to our, to our sickness, Lord. You would, you, would, you would apply it, Father, to, to our lives and the areas, Lord, that are dark, that you would apply it, Lord, when we are doing good, that we wouldn't be trusting in ourselves, but we continue to trust in the work of Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that you would keep us humble, God, that we would never take ourselves seriously, but Lord, in taking Jesus seriously, that we would meet the needs of others. God, I pray that you would convict me as a naturally selfish person and convict our church as naturally selfish people to not use people because of our own deficiencies, Lord, but drinking deep from the waters of grace, Lord, that we may be filled with an overflow of love that gladly meets the needs of others. Father, we thank you for the great grace and the great joy and the great truth and freedom that we have in your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.